0: Right. well, tonight uh, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And we're clearly nearing the end of the book of 1 Peter. And so uh, when we get to the end of the book, um, I will do a, uh, essentially a, um, a summary uh, of the themes of 1 Peter. And as we, uh, as we kind of go through and consider uh, the, the message of First Peter as a whole. Um, but tonight uh, we are going to be uh, concluding Peter's section on humility and this section that he gives on particularly about hope uh, in the midst of our humble submission to God. So we'll be reading First Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Reading from the English Standard Version, Hear the word of the Lord. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. So... Uh, we can. I think we could safely say that people handle suffering differently. And but one common way that you that people will deal with suffering is they will place their hope in uh, what we can only describe as time and change, and the hope of time and change. That is, if we can just hang on, uh, it, it will get better. That you know, just somehow, some way. You know, it's, you know, as they say, time heals all wounds. And then we usually follow that up with, yeah, that's not really true. (laughs) Um, But this brings up the nature of hope. What is Christian hope? In English, uh, we define the word hope as a basic expectation or desire for something to happen. The Bible has uh, a bit more nuance to that word. Uh, Technically speaking, the biblical word for hope means a certain expectation of something. There's an aspect of implied assurance, confidence in the the concept of biblical hope. Uh, Now, to be sure, there is such a thing as a blind hope or an empty hope or even a dead hope. So which one do Christians have? Well the key to knowing how certain one's hope is is to answer one very simple question: What is the object of our hope? What is it that our hope rests upon? And uh, And if the, you know if the object of our hope is the result itself, well the, you know that things will just get better. Well, then that is blind hope. That is sentimental hope. That is just hoping for the best somehow, some way. That's magical hope. It's nice, sure, but it doesn't have any reality to it. It's not something that you can actually hold on to or that will pay off. If I set my hope in the midst of my suffering on myself, on my doctor, on a politician, then I will be sadly disappointed. But if our hope is set upon God, then indeed we have a certainty and right expectation that goes with our hope, as long as that hope is in accordance with God's promises and actions. And this is where Peter directs his audience he has shown us thus far in chapter 5 that we, need, that we have a need for a humble life as the church. And here he describes the humble hope of the church because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in the institution of the church itself. Our hope in the midst of hardship, affliction, and opposition of any kind is in the gospel of God. That is, our hope is defined by who God is and by what God will do. And we'll look at each of those aspects tonight. So first, our hope is defined by who God is. Now, Peter tells us that our God is, the first of all, the God of all grace. Uh, This is one of those titles that we blow by because the word God and grace are very familiar to us. They're very familiar in the same context. The God of all grace. Okay, yeah, you just just keep going until we find something new that catches our attention. But uh, but what does it mean for God to be the God of all grace? Grace most basically means divine favor, undeserved, unmerited favor from God. Uh, You could even call it um, undeserved bias from God, that he's going to lean in our direction, uh, though we do not deserve it. That's what, uh, that's what grace is. Uh, that word all would indicate uh, not, a gra- not grace to everyone who's ever lived, but all kinds of grace, uh, various kinds of grace and varying degrees and depths of grace that God gives to his people. When Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he commended them. "...to God and to the word of His grace." In Acts 20, verse 32. And and as he says there, "...His gracious word builds up the church and brings the promised inheritance to the people of God." When Paul, in Romans 5-2, wrote to those Roman Christians, he reminded them that access to this grace comes by faith alone and not from works." Further, he says, we stand in this grace of God, and because of his grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians in his second letter, he said in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That is, this grace is abounding to us, to God's people, to the church, from God. And grace gives us what we need for every situation, not simply so that we we can feel at peace or feel good about it, but he says that way you may do the works of God even in the midst of affliction and suffering. Uh, And uh, James even gets in on the action here, and his book in chapter 4, verse 6, says that when we fail, we ought to run to God in confession and submission because this God still gives more grace to meet us, even in today's sinful failures by His people. In our suffering, we may be tempted to believe that God is not The God of grace, or the God of all grace. That we've hit our quota of grace for the year. We can't draw on it anymore for a while. But Peter reminds us that our God is the God of all grace towards his people. His grace makes us his people. His grace sanctifies us, sustains us. His grace forgives our sin, enables us to serve God. And so don't sell God short in your pain or your suffering. He is the God of all grace, and He has plenty of grace to share with you, with His people. Peter also says that He is the God who calls us. That calling needs to be carefully defined. And Peter presents this calling of God as, as one that is a certain calling, an inevitable calling, a calling that will not fail. Thus, we can have hope in our suffering. Why can we hope in our suffering? Because God has called you. There is a calling upon you that will not fail. If God's, fall, if God's calling should fail, if it's possible for God's calling to fail, then this line makes no sense in terms of giving us hope. Now there's a general type of calling that we, that we talk about, like making a gospel call to any and all who will hear the gospel so that they may turn and repent, uh, but we know that not everyone will hear that gospel call, that general call, and be saved. That's not what we're talking about here. Peter is assuring these suffering Christians by the certain calling upon them by God into salvation. It is the calling of God through the gospel that is at work in His people in all times of their lives. It is the calling of God that comes out of the free and special love of God for His people, draws us to Christ by the Word of God and by His Holy Spirit. It is the calling that enlightens our mind to the knowledge of Christ, that renews our wills, that we should desire Christ and love Him in acceptance of the grace of the gospel that has been offered to us. And the point is, is that God's calling, Peter is showing us here, is not weak and ineffectual to be, that is thrown off by our suffering or our sorrows or even by our own disobedience at times. His calling is powerful, effective, and sure because it comes from him. It comes according to his will by the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and this is where we need to focus on where God calls us to. In In the midst of suffering, Peter tells us to humble ourselves before God, who according to his grace has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, again, that's another phrase, eternal glory in Christ. And when we, eternal glory, Christ, those are all familiar words for us since we just kind of, just go right by it. What is God's eternal glory in Christ? Because as soon as you stop and go, like, I'm not sure I know what that is, right? It's good, I know it's good, and I know I want it, right? (laughs) But I'm not exactly sure what that is. Uh, well, the glory of God is most basically, one of my kids at a family worship was asking, they were like, what is glory? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, and they ask those questions that adults don't want to answer. <laughs> and so, and we're kind of like, you know, and just give them an is like, but what is it? You know, it's just like, it's hard to understand, son. <laughs> it's just like, what is this? So, um, but the glory of God is essentially the outward expression of God's internal perfections. Right. It's his glory is the light that radiates off of the sun. And so we behold the glory of God and his work in creation, the creatures and the the environments that he has made for us. uh, His glory in space and time, all spoken into being by our God. But this is not the glory that Peter is speaking of. We behold the glory of God in the the midst of Christ's miracles in the Gospels. As John explicitly says, we beheld the glory of God in Christ and his miracles. It says at the wedding of Cana. This is related to, but not what Peter is talking about. And certainly the people of God behold the glory of God in heaven when we depart this life as disembodied souls. We are in the presence of God. And again, this is related to, but not exactly what Peter is talking about, the eternal glory in Christ. The eternal glory in Christ, I would argue, is nothing less than the kingdom of God itself, the fullness of God's promises the blessed experience of the resurrection in in the new heavens and the new earth, living in perfect communion with God in the light of Christ. A life free of sorrow, suffering, and pain. A physical life filled with joy, freedom, and love. This is what the Lord has called His people to. And so, you know, Are are you sorrowful? Are you anxious? Are you suffering? Are you in pain? Are you at a loss for what to do or what to say because of the circumstances in your own life? Then, then, Then remember that your God is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He has called you to a new life, a new existence, a new world. And he will not stop until his calling is made full and complete in your life. The hardships of this life are used by the flesh, the world and the devil to lie to us. To say that God and his promises are a lie. That his promises are nothing. That this life is all there is. So get whatever good you can and despair of the rest. But as Peter said in the first part of this letter, our faith in Christ, even in the midst of trial, transforms our hardships into a purifying furnace, preparing us to receive the fullness of our salvation. Even the worst that the devil, that the world can throw at us, the worst that our own flesh that we can at times give into can do, is to simply create a furnace by which God is purifying us in preparation to receive the kingdom. If you're suffering tonight, if you know someone who's suffering, remember the God who has called you. Remember where he has called you. And take comfort for the endurance of your faith. Our our hope is defined not by who we are, not by what the world is or, or what we want. Our hope is defined by who our God is, the God of all grace who has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. Secondly, our hope is defined by what God will do. By what God will do. And clearly... One thing that God will do, according to Peter, is he will bring an end to our suffering. Peter indicates in verse 10 by saying, after a little while, after you've suffered a little while. And he, by that phrase, he indicates that suffering has an expiration date. It doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like a long time. Doesn't mean that we won't cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord. I mean I remember even just uh what was it twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, um and uh and I got I got a was running around a playground with my kids and I um and I jumped over something and then landed and suddenly I was reminded that I was 38 or 39, <laughs> and uh, I received what I, found out, what I found out later was a minor tear in my calf muscle. That minor tear <laughs> was about one of the most painful things I've ever felt, <laughs> and it felt like a long time. Intense pain can make short periods of time feel like very long periods of time. And so, uh, and so in saying, and Peter saying, after you've suffered a little while, he is, uh, he's not saying that, you know, if you are a true believer or a super good Christian, that you won't have any suffering or that any suffering you have will be super short or real or just a little bit. He means that in the larger view of things, that the grace of God uh, specifically and, and mercifully um, that our our suffering, our, our condition, whatever situation we are enduring, even if it lasts the whole of our lives, will come to an end, and so he doesn 't stop there but but this is an important remember to remember when we are in pain, when we are suffering, when we are going through hardship and affliction, uh, because uh, honestly it 's not unlike when I tell my kids and I remind myself when it 's time to get a shot, and I go okay if, if it hurts, count You know, look away or close your eyes. Count to ten. It'll probably be done, right? Like that's 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 what I tell. That's what that's what I do. That's what I tell my kids to do. Now, this is not to minimize someone's pain. This is not to say that what you're going through isn't that bad. But what it's saying is that that we need to see that in uh, we need to see our suffering in view of the eternal glory in Christ. It's like when Paul says, the guy who was shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and went through all this stuff, who also said that I do not count any of the present sufferings even worth comparing to the glories that are going to come. He says, I'm not even going to entertain that as a thought. It's not even in the same category. That's how confident Paul, a guy who went through a lot of suffering, said And that's how he helped him give him perspective on what he was going through and what other Christians were going through. We have to have that eternal perspective. One day, our suffering will end. One day, your share of sorrows will no longer be added to. One day, your pain will find relief. And in that moment, Peter says that God will act. And he gives four verbs here. And first, he said, Peter says that God will restore you. Now, that word restore means to mend or to put in proper condition. Now, it's not, um, it can be used in the sense of like restoring an antique chair. But the sense that in the way that Peter uses it here is that it's not simply restoring it to its original condition, but making it as it should be in its ideal state. Much of life because of sin in the world and, the, and because of the flesh in ourselves causes disorder and damage. And no matter how wrong things have gotten for us, how hard life has become, Peter says there is a time coming when not only will it stop being bad, but God will take all that is disordered within us and make it right. Next, Peter says that God will confirm and strengthen us. And these two terms we take together because they are practically synonyms. Um, The first word confirm means to cause to be inwardly firm or committed. And the second word simply means to make strong, to make stronger, strengthen. Suffering of any kind makes us keenly aware of our limitations, our weakness, and our inadequacies. Our helplessness in the face of so many circumstances causes us to cry out to God to help us because we are in need, because we lack, we are wanting. But Peter says that there is a time to come when God will strengthen us from the inside out, that we will overcome those weaknesses and limitations that have been set upon us by sin and corruption of our natures. It doesn't mean that we won't need God anymore, by no means. But it does mean all that causes that human creaturely weakness and frailty that causes us so much pain and sorrow and anxiety will be gone. And finally, Peter says that in due time, God will establish us. The word establish means to provide a secure basis for the inner life and its resources. That's what it means to establish, to provide a secure basis for the inner life and its resources. Any Christian who has followed God for any length of time wishes to be more holy than they are presently. How often do we wish for greater strength and ability in our fight against our own sinfulness? How often do we struggle with wishing that we, you know, we knew what to do in a certain situation, that we had more confidence about the future, that we, so we didn't worry all the time? Well, here are four verbs that describe what God will do for his people in due time as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. The last thing I want to note about this verse is that that word himself in verse 10, that God himself will do these four verbs. God is not going to outsource this work to an archangel or to some other heavenly being. It's too personal for him. It's too important for him. It is God who will accomplish our restoration, and our exaltation, our relief from our pain and our suffering and our sorrow. It is God himself who will see to our restoration. You know, it's like if you're ever dealing with um, a really good um, you know, contractor, you're working, you know, a carpenter or something like that, and you're working with somebody, and then uh, instead of him coming out, he sends like a guy that works for him. And you're always like, ugh. <laughs> you're like, uh, I hope this is going to work out well. But then you feel that special privilege when he goes, you know what, actually, you know what, I'm going to come myself. I'm going to handle this myself. We go, yeah, we feel taken care of, right? We feel, yeah, taken care of. And usually, hopefully, it's not because they screwed it up. (laughs) But, uh, you know, but it's like that. God's saying, I myself, the creator of the world, your redeemer, the one who planned it, who orchestrated it all, who brought it, I myself will oversee personally Your restoration, your strengthening, your confirmation, I will lift you up. And that is the point of this passage, that God will exalt his people. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, that our Savior humbled himself through obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And the result was that our Father in heaven exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of Christ's exaltation after his humiliation, we as his people expect and trust in our own exaltation. Not in the same way of Christ, of course. We're not the Messiah. But we follow in His path of humility and obedience, trusting in His salvation. Peter calls upon us to humble ourselves and to trust in God in due time. He will lift us up and pour out the eternal blessings of our Savior upon us. Humiliation and exaltation then are not only for our Savior but for us who follow him as his disciples. We humble ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, trusting that in due time God will act on our behalf. And we know he will because these promises have been secured for us in the gospel of grace and in the love of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ who presently has overcome all his sorrows and sufferings and travails, been resurrected and ascended, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And when he comes, he shall accomplish the exaltation of his people. And Peter rightly closes here with a brief doxology. As he thinks about who God is and what God has done for us, and what God will do for us, Peter cannot help but bless God. Peter is a man who knows what it means to suffer for Christ and who will learn what it means to suffer for Christ when he is martyred for the faith. In the midst of it, Peter commends us to the place of true hope for the people of God. And our true hope is not in time and chance, as so many place their hope today. Our hope for relief and restoration, our hope from suffering, is in God, is in our God, the God of all grace, the God who has called us to His eternal glory in Christ, the God who Himself will exalt His people and make us whole let's pray heavenly father we thank you that in jesus christ we indeed have that promise and that hope a certain hope not pie in the sky hope not blind hope certainly not a dead hope our hope is as alive as our savior who is raised from the dead, ascended, and lives forever, eternally, lives gloriously, powerfully, abundantly. And he gives life to his people. He gives life to our souls. And one day, he will bring an end to our suffering, and he will bring life, eternal life, and resurrection glory in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we pray. That in our own suffering and hardship and fears, that we would be encouraged by this hope that you give us. That we would indeed humble ourselves before you, entrusting ourselves to this hope that we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would encourage others to do the same. Our suffering, brothers and sisters, that we would turn them to Peter's words, that they may lift their eyes to Christ and be renewed and strengthened in their own pain and hardship and affliction. And Lord, may you bless us as your people. May our hope not be in the world and what it offers, but may it always be in Jesus Christ. For while he lives, our hope lives. And one day, we will see him face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.